online as well. This morning we're going to be looking at a passage in Acts chapter 15 that deals with with pretty big disagreement between two churches in the first century. Unfortunately, there's no end to the number of things that people can disagree about together. After all, we, we are all human, and without heavy reliance on God's Holy Spirit, Christians are more likely than not to, to give in to that human nature. And the big idea that I think we'll get out of our passage in Acts chapter 15 today is that the Holy Spirit can teach us to turn our divisions into a public testimony of unity, of love, and of care for one another. And I think that this big idea is a very important lesson for us because church history tells us that disagreements and disputes, well, they just happen all the time in the church. Very often, these disputes could have been handled with a bit more love and care, and also very often, these disputes resulted in schisms or in divisions, which split the church into multiple denominations. As I began studying this passage some time ago, I became curious. I wondered, well, how many Christian denominations are there in the world today? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever looked it up? Well, I found that there is a not-for-profit organization called the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. They published a report in 2019. How many people do you think? How many denominations, Nick? You want to? Hundreds. Nick says hundreds. There, technically, there are hundreds. Their 2019 report estimates there are approximately 45,000 different denominations worldwide today. Each denomination represents one group finding enough to disagree about, enough to differentiate themselves, to set themselves aside from a different group, that they felt no other choice but to apply a label that's just for them. Now, this doesn't mean that some of these divisions aren't justified, and it's not my job up here today to judge any of them. My point is just to observe together that there is a massive historical precedent for divisions in the church. And so it seems wise to me that we should pay heed to this. We should, we should be aware that this could happen to us. Even perfect Rosemount Bible Church, we might have disagreements. And those disagreements might be severe enough that they could cause divisions in the church. And I'll repeat myself. I think that our passage in Acts 15 teaches us a lot about how to disagree well with one another. So let's jump into our passage today. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 15, starting from verse 1. The, the translation you see on the screen is the ESV, the English Standard Version. The passage starts, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have ever been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And who? All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. It's a really big passage. But we'll pass through it two times. What we're dealing with in this passage are two distinct church communities. There's one in Jerusalem, one in Antioch. The church in Jerusalem 
led by Jesus' apostles and by the local elders there. It's composed mostly of Jewish converts to Christianity. The church in Antioch, well, that was started and led by Paul and Barnabas. It's a more diverse church. It's composed of a mix of, of Jews, of Hebrews, also of Hellenists, Jews with a Greek background, and of Gentiles with all kinds of pagan backgrounds. We learn in the opening verses that there were visitors from the Jerusalem church who arrive in Antioch. And they observed the diverse cultures and practices going on in the Antioch church. And these Jewish visitors began publicly teaching with authority that the Gentile believers in Antioch were getting it wrong. Luke summarizes their teaching with this one sentence in verse 1. It's pretty black and white. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you can't be saved. Now, that's a, that's a statement that would have surely contradicted Paul's teaching in Antioch and would have also contradicted the first-hand experiences that the Gentiles would have had over there. If you remember, Acts chapter 11 tells us that Antioch was one of the first regions that the gospel spread to for non-Jews. Antioch was the place where the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. The gospel message that these Gentiles heard very likely would have resembled what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He wrote, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. People who, who know me a little bit know that I'm a, a meticulous planner. When I get asked to speak, I study for weeks maybe even months. I write my whole passage out and I rewrite it and I rewrite it. And not much changes by the time I get up here, but I walked to church this morning. We don't live far. And, uh, and the Spirit, while I was praying, moved me to try and let go for a second. And uh, so I'm going to break away from my text and talk about this gospel message. It's hard for us in the 21st century to get a sense of just how shocking this teaching would have been to these Gentiles, to be told that they were getting it wrong. When I think about the gospel message, what makes it so special or unique or worth sharing, like our brother Balaji was sharing last week, I don't know what your life experience is like. Before I knew Jesus, and even Sometimes after, I often feel like life can be empty. Or if it's not empty, it's painful. I often feel like I'm sinking in the consequences of my own mistakes, in the consequences of everything that I have done wrong and that all of you have done wrong too, and all that everybody before me and around me on this planet has done wrong. Everything just seems to be sinking. And every now and then in life, I do something that breaks me out, that shakes me out of that feeling. We went to Niagara Falls this summer, the family vacation. I felt different when I saw Niagara Falls. I thought, ah, I've seen a waterfall. I have an idea of what it looks like. It was nothing like what I thought, okay? It's massive. It's awesome in that sense of making me feel so small that I forgot about, for a second, 
that sinking feeling. Felt like there's something bigger out there. Way bigger than everything that I can see and touch. When my children were born, I had that same feeling. Life has got to be more than just about my problems, my mistakes. But what is that thing? The Bible tells us that Jesus died for our sins, died for our mistakes. At some point in time in church history, the gospel message, a big part of it was that Jesus died so that you can be spared from hell. And that's true. That is a true part of it. I think hell is a great description of where the world is heading today. And I think there's enough inertia that that is a certain direction. Jesus dying will spare us from that. But there's so much more than just avoiding a negative. The Bible says that God is preparing a place for us and a space for us to be with him in relationship forever so that every day will be a Niagara Falls kind of day. Every day will be a new life kind of day, kind of experience that we'll get to share with others who believe in Jesus and we get to share it with Jesus himself. And that's the best that I can describe what that salvation will be like. And it will be forever. And that salvation is not dependent on what you have done or what you have not done in your life. It's not about the mistakes that you've made or whether you've lived a perfect life. The gospel is that Jesus has lived a sinless life. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be consumed with guilt over what you've done in your life that's bad. You have to believe that Jesus has lived a perfect life and his death matters in that respect. Also, don't have to worry about how much you know. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to be saved. You don't need to know all this law of Moses and the Old Testament. You don't need to know the word of God perfectly. You need to believe, the gospel says, that Jesus is the word of God, the living word of God. Believe in that and you will be saved. It also doesn't matter who you think you are. We live in a world right now where pretty much everything in life except for public libraries are limited to whether you're rich enough, whether you're famous enough to have access to these things. The gospel is for everybody who believes. That's all that matters. That is exciting to me. I don't need to know the right thing, or do the right thing, or be the right person. I just need to believe that the Lord Jesus died for me, that God raised him from the dead, and he'll do the same for me and for you if we believe. I, I would like to imagine that's the kind of message that the, the believers in Antioch received from the Apostle Paul. The gospel message had everything to do with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not around the laws and customs of Moses. This gospel I preached about a little over a year ago in 2022, I nicknamed 
the gospel message, Jesus plus nothing, in reference to the book of Galatians chapter 1, because there's nothing that we can do to earn or jeopardize our salvation beyond placing our faith in Jesus' incredible sacrifice on the cross and in his miraculous resurrection. So for these visitors to come around and start insisting that what you heard about salvation and what you've done, placing your faith in Jesus, that that's not enough, it would have been scandalous. And of all things to be told that the thing that you do need to do on top of all this is get circumcised, it's just too much. Talk about bait-and-switch marketing. It's a very upsetting teaching. You know, if I jump at the, to the end of the passage in verse 24, we find that the mindset of the Antioch believers, after hearing this teaching, they were described as confused, as disturbed, as troubled and unsettled. You know, that's not strong enough language in our English translations. That's how I feel when I find out supper is going to be 30 minutes late. Okay? These believers were shocked. Their core beliefs were under attack. So understandably, Paul and Barnabas, they're pulled into a very public dispute on the matter. And it was a dispute. It wasn't just a mutual disagreement. We see things in different perspectives. No, uh, it was a heated argument. And it was one that they realized it couldn't possibly be resolved there in Antioch between these two visitors and Paul and Barnabas. They realized that the, the accusations were coming from these ambassadors from the Jerusalem church, and so to Jerusalem they'd have to go. They needed to seek consultation with the elders in the church in Jerusalem and the apostles, Jesus' apostles who were there, to, to, to get an answer to this question. And the questions, plural, that they would debate, I have them up on the screen, the way that they were reframed by a theologian that I, I read named Daryl Bach, and they include the, the following. First of all, should Gentiles affirming faith in Jesus also observe Jewish law for salvation? Second question, on what basis can Gentile Christians ignore God's covenant law? Third question, how can fellowship occur if, Christ, if Jewish Christians keep the law, but Gentile Christians don't? And similarly, fourth question, how can law-observing Jewish Christians but law-ignoring Gentile Christians, how can they coexist in the same church family? So on that basis, the discussions commence. Scripture says there was much debate. And Luke records in the book of Acts three main speakers among the assembly who were gathered for that purpose. We have the Apostle Peter, we have the Apostle Paul, and we have a Jerusalem church leader, leader, leader named James. So Peter speaks first. He builds a strong argument for a law-free gospel based on his own miraculous experience that we can read about in Acts chapter 10. Now, in his experience back then, the Bible says that Peter had been praying before mealtime. And then it says that he entered into a trance. And in that trance, he saw a vision of all kinds. It's my kind of vision, by the way. It's, it's a, a, a great tablecloth descending from heaven with all kinds of animals on it. And a voice, he heard, said, Peter... Um, it's okay now, you can kill and eat these animals. But the animals were all animals that he recognized in his Jewish faith as being unclean. You don't touch, you don't kill, you don't eat. And he, he heard that voice say that thing to him three times. And after the vision passed, the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter and, and told him that he would soon be visited by three men. 
And the Spirit told Peter to accompany these three men wherever they brought him without any hesitation at all. It turns out that these men were sent by the same Holy Spirit to bring Peter to the home of their master, Cornelius. They got their own message. Now, Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, the Bible said. The problem is that Cornelius and his family were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They were a group of people that Peter understood to be not chosen by God, not part of his blessing, and not to be associated with, kind of like the food in the vision. This book that we've been reading together these past several months is about the acts of the Holy Spirit. And on this particular day, in Acts chapter 10, the Spirit was doing something absolutely new and unprecedented. In Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter proclaimed, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew, like me, to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Later on in verse 34, he goes on to say, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And finally, in verses 44 and 45 of chapter 10, Luke records that while Peter was still saying all these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who held the word, heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even among the Gentiles. Unprecedented. Never happened before. This transformation, transformational experience that Peter had, this miraculous encounter, completely shapes his position now in Acts 15 as he gets up and speaks to the other elders and apostles about the matter. Peter's position is absolutely clear when it comes to gospel freedom, Jesus plus nothing. In Acts 15, verses 7 to 11, I repeat that he says, Brothers, you know in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So that's Peter's position. Next to speak are Paul and Barnabas. And it's worth noting here, Paul and Barnabas are not decision makers in this council. They're visitors. They're welcome to speak and share their testimony, but they're not going to be making this decision because they're not among the apostles and the elders of this Jerusalem church. Now, if Peter's role was to confirm the Holy Spirit's decision to include Gentiles, then the testimony of Paul and Barnabas would be to confirm the Holy Spirit's approval of that decision. And this approval, he argues, would take place through the signs and wonders that God would have um, put out on display on the Gentiles. Now, we're not told exactly what kind of signs and wonders Paul shared in this particular council setting, but if I read back through the book of Acts and look at the kinds of signs and wonders that took place in Gentile territories, with Paul and Barnabas, I would see things like this. Acts chapter 9, Paul's own conversion. The apostle Paul, who I described, used to be the Jewish Pharisee Saul, a persecutor of Christians, a conspirator to, to murder, and a murderer. Um, 
this is the person that God would have chosen and revealed himself on the road to Damascus. Paul was struck blind and heard a voice, the voice of Jesus saying, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And that same voice told him that you, Saul, will be my chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles. That's a sign and a wonder. In Acts chapter 10, a crowd of Gentiles had heard and received the word of God through the apostle Peter, and they received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. In Acts 13, almost the whole entire city of Antioch and Pisidia showed up to hear the gospel preached to both Jews and Gentiles. Luke writes that many believed, many were appointed to eternal life, and the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And just last week, in Acts chapter 14, we heard that many signs and wonders accompanied Paul's ministry in Iconium. Over a long period of time, and a miraculous healing was recorded in the town of Lystra. The theologian C.K. Barrett observes that the occurrence of signs and wonders shows God's approval of the inclusion of the Gentiles who believe on the name of Jesus. So the final word in this matter is attributed to James, a leader so widely recognized that Luke, in writing the book of Acts, doesn't even bother clarifying which James it is. He just says James with no introduction. Now, Acts chapter 12 describes the death of the apostle James, so we know it isn't him. This is a, a different James. He's also introduced in Acts chapter 12. He's singled out by Paul as one who stands out among the Judean brothers. He's noteworthy. In the book of Galatians, Paul also refers to James, the half-brother of Jesus, as someone connected with this very same dispute that we're having here. It also happened in Galatia on the matter of Gentile circumcision and adherence to the law of Moses. So Peter testifies to the words of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas testify to the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit. James testifies... The James, the Jewish leader of the Jewish church, he testifies from the word of God itself. And his testimony, rather than contradicting the experiences that the brothers brought, it actually confirms it. James reads from the prophet Amos in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, which read, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I'll, report, I'll repair its broken walls. I'll restore its ruins. And I'll rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. That's the text taken straight out of the book of Amos. When James quotes it, he says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. The theologian Daryl Bach writes that James' reading of Amos shows that the teaching of the prophets in the Old Testament agrees with the inclusion of the Gentiles. He says, Bach says that James' point isn't just about this one passage in Amos, but that all the prophets taught this in general. For example, I could turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. We read, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The prophet Hosea writes in chapter 2, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. 
and he shall say, you are my God. Zechariah chapter 2 says, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. The theologian F.F. Bruce wrote in his commentary that in the Old Testament, the nations or the Gentiles are always held in contrast to God's chosen people, Israel. But in these Old Testament prophecies, God is not taking a people in contrast to the Gentiles. He's taking a people that includes the Gentiles. The Gentile mission is not only the actual work of God that's playing itself out right here in the book of Acts, but it's something that the Holy Spirit has fulfilled. It's something that the words of the prophets are in full agreement with, that they even predicted. So James's judgment, therefore, will not require Gentile believers to be circumcised as, as a prerequisite for salvation. Nor will they be required to follow the law of Moses as a prerequisite for salvation. The salvation question seems resolved. As for the question of how Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians can enjoy fellowship together, particularly table fellowship, a fellowship that requires physically sitting together and eating together and being together, James recommends four practices that the Gentile believers abstain from food sacrificed to idols, that they abstain from the consumption of blood, that they abstain from eating animals that have been strangled to death. By the way, who strangles animals to, to slaughter them for food? I, I, I couldn't figure that out. Uh, and that they finally abstain from sexual immorality. Again, Daryl Bach, the theologian, chimes in that these limitations are to keep relations from being strained in a mixed community of Gentile and Jewish believers, as well as to warn against association with idolatry. And it's quite likely that this prohibition relates especially to attending pagan temples and all that's associated with them, because remember, a lot of these Gentile believers were converts from previous pagan religions where these things would have been practiced. Now that we've covered the what and the why behind this New Testament disagreement, I want to take another pass through the same passages to understand how they disagreed with one another. Remember, we talked at the beginning about all these divisions in the church, about the likelihood that that could happen to us. And I believe that in Acts chapter 15, we see a great model on how the church disagreed with itself well, how they did this well we could learn from that and apply it in our lives. So we understand this was a major controversy. If you were a Gentile Christian in the first century church, the Jerusalem meeting would de determine whether your salvation was considered valid, whether your experience being filled with the Holy Spirit was legitimate, was genuine even whether you would be fit to, see, fit to share a table with other Jewish believers in your own church family. So it was a big deal. And viewing this big deal from our 21st century perspective, and maybe some of the experiences or observations you've made in your life about how we tend to handle disagreements in the world in this day and age, maybe we, we can imagine how, how they could have treated one another through our through our modern lens, you know? Could we imagine that there would have been a lot of raised voices yelling at each other, that perhaps 
those debating and discussing would be speaking over one another just to get their voices heard. Maybe there, there could have been name-calling. Maybe the uh, Gentile Christians would have called the uh, Jewish Christians, uh, accused them of diminishing Jesus' sacrificial death, or perhaps we could imagine the Jewish Christians calling their Gentile brothers unclean or disobedient. It could be. That's certainly the way that disagreements carry out in this day and age. But if we look to Scripture, I see four things that are worth calling out in how these two churches disagreed with one another. The first thing that I see is that the entire Jerusalem church welcomed Paul and Barnabas in verse 4. The whole Antioch delegation was welcomed. This was not some kind of stuffy, ecumenical, denominational conference. This was a homecoming. The Jerusalem church acted as hosts, and the Antioch visitors were their honored guests. They started by sharing, the, the, the Antioch visitors started by sharing testimonies of all that God was doing in the Gentile churches. And everybody was encouraged. They did this before they got into any debating. The second thing I see is that the apostles and the elders gathered together, in verse 6 it says, to consider the matter. The Greek word that's used here, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, is horao. It, um, it means not just seeing something with your eyes, but seeing it with your mind, understanding it for what it really is, not just what it appears to be on the surface. They gather together for the purpose of spiritual discernment. It's a word that we encounter a lot in the Gospels and doesn't mean, merely suggest seeing something, but getting it. So, understanding it. So the elders and the apostles weren't getting together to just examine or discuss a problem, figure out who's right and who's wrong. They were, un they were, they were motivated in understanding. Holy Spirit, God, what do you want us to do? The third thing I noticed is that the leaders gave testimony. They didn't give arguments. I do believe that there was debate and discussion. What Luke records are testimonies. The goal wasn't for one party to prove the other party wrong. They simply shared what each of them had witnessed and experienced. And then they discerned together what it meant. Peter shared his experiences with Cornelius and the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas shared the signs and wonders. James shared what the prophets had written. And in their goal of coming to a common understanding, there wasn't, in the end, really any conflict to speak of. because everything fit. Doesn't mean that what they were experiencing wasn't new, wasn't awesome, wasn't scary, because it was. It was really transformational at the time. But it was also consistent. And the last thing I observe is that the leaders, they fell silent, and they listened when others spoke in verse 12. They took turns sharing their experiences and listening their discussion appeared orderly, respectful, dignified. There was nothing that took place, no behavior or words that were described by Luke that would have brought shame on any elder or apostle or visitor. And nowhere do I find the heart motivation of these ancient Christians 
more clear to me than in the wording of James's decision in Acts chapter 15, verse 19. He says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Remember that the original question brought to the Jerusalem Council was whether the Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. That question was almost an accusation. Were they really saved? But the decision rendered by James and the Jerusalem Council, didn't, it didn't take that bait to answer the question yes or no. Where the question took the form of an accusation causing doubt, the decision took the form of an encouragement, doesn't it? An encouragement that causes reassurance. The first part of the decision focuses on the well-being of the Gentile believers. We shouldn't trouble them. We shouldn't unsettle their minds. There's no way, that's no way to treat our brothers. The council ends up writing a letter to these Christians in Antioch. They end up sending delegates to go read them the letter and testify themselves in person that they're, they're free from that kind of condemnation. And it was an encouragement to the believers at the time. And the second part of the decision focuses on the well-being of the Jewish believers. James acknowledges that the law of Moses, it, it had been taught for generations in every city that has a, a synagogue in the ancient world. And the Gentile Christians may have their gospel freedom from the law, but it's a sudden freedom. It just happened. And it's jarring It's one that doesn't integrate just like that with their Jewish brothers. So by doing this, the Gentile Christians will respect and honor the sensibilities of their Jewish brothers. This list of four things from which to abstain, it shouldn't be seen that there was the big law of Moses and we're going to shrink that down to a law of just four things so that they can be saved. That's not what this is. Rather, it's about nurturing a spirit of sensitivity about practices that could cause offense, practices that could have been commonplace, remember, for these Gentiles that may have been pagan worshipers before they encountered Jesus. The theologian Daryl Bach, he observes there's a cultural sensitivity taking place in this decision where the issue is not establishing a set of fixed practices but respecting the existing practices of others, not forcing oneself on another because of such views. The believers, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, they display a cross-cultural concern. And that concern leads to harmony. John Stott, a theologian with his own commentary on the book of Acts, he summarized these two complementary decisions with, with this observation. He says, on the one hand, we have to recognize that salvation by grace is an issue of fundamental Christian truth. It's not to be compromised in any way. No particular work of the law was added as a requirement for our salvation or membership in the new church community. Salvation cannot be a matter of human works. On the other hand, Christian fellowship means that grace should be shown for differences that are not central to the truth of salvation. And the purpose of that is an expression of love for one another. So I said earlier that the big idea behind today's passage is that the Holy Spirit can teach us to turn our divisions into a public testimony of unity. 
How can that be true? I think it comes down to a question of where we put our focus. And I'll illustrate this by contrasting how I see the world disagreeing with how I see the church disagreeing in Acts chapter 15. And the world disagrees by submitting to our human nature. It's a human nature I desperately want to escape from, but I often find myself as that there's that line from The Godfather 2, I think. As soon as I think I'm out, they pull me back in. I've dated myself. Right? I'd love to be fully escaped from my human nature, but I get pulled back into it time and again. And I see that in how I react when I get pulled into disagreements. But in Acts chapter 15, we see that the church submits to the Holy Spirit's nature in contrast to our human nature. So think about these three scenarios as we wrap up. First scenario, think about what it's like when someone approaches you with a complaint or a dispute. This could be any of us. I'm particularly talking to people in church leadership right now. Now, when we submit to our human nature, it's very common to perceive that complaint as a personal attack, a challenge. And when that happens, our immediate response is to take a step back and assume a defensive posture. That individual, the individual raising a complaint or a dispute might be viewed as hostile, an opponent. Our instinct might be to deny the complaint or to engage in dispute right away. Out there in the world, someone might even think about reprisals for someone bringing something like that forward. Other times, it's not uncommon in the world to completely ignore a complaint or a dispute if it's not brought up by someone who's seen as valuable in the world or important. A person might be seen as too young or too old or part of a minority group. And so that person is seen as insignificant. Our human nature leads us to ignore that type of person, brush it off. And it's easy because we don't think that listening or engaging with that person will bring us any material benefit whatsoever. But we look at the Acts 15 model, and what do we see? We see that if we deny our human nature and we submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we can regard such a person not as being an opponent, but as someone in need. We don't have to see ourselves as combatants, but as caregivers. They don't have to be people to fight or, or people to ignore, but people to serve and to shepherd. We can let our attitude, our behavior, be shaped by the Holy Spirit. We can look beyond the surface of, an, of a disagreement and be curious but how the other person might be troubled, just like the Gentile Christians, and be in need of our shepherding. Second scenario, imagine what it's like when you're actually drawn into the disagreement, when you're in the thick of it. According to our human nature, it's very common to just jump right into the exchange. Emotions are high. Our sense of conviction of being right is high. So we rush into conflict without thinking, whether by, in the world, whether by force or coercion or manipulation or politics, 
The goal of this disagreement is to win. And winning is a zero-sum game. There's no compromise. There's one winner who's right and one loser that's wrong. This is how our sports teams work. This is how our politics works. And, and sometimes this is how our churches function. But following the Acts 15 model, submitting to the Holy Spirit, uh, submitting to his nature and not ours, we can exhibit the fruit of patience. It was okay for Paul and Barnabas and the visitors from Jerusalem to acknowledge that the situation couldn't be resolved from Antioch, that they had to travel together to Jerusalem to settle the matter. Not everything's going to happen when we want it to. In spite of the importance of the matter in it, it was super important. They took the time to work with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. They took the time to give testimonies of what God had been doing in Antioch. And when they gathered together to settle the matter, they didn't regard one another as opponents. They regarded one another as brothers. And the goal wasn't to have a winner and a loser or a right and a wrong. The goal was to seek spiritual discernment together. Whatever that discernment ended up being, and the goal was to meet the needs of their communities, even when those needs appeared at odds with one another. And the last scenario to consider is what, what life is like after a disagreement has taken place. According to our human nature, it's often common to retreat back into our own corners, go back to the people who think and act the way that we do, especially the way our social media platforms are engineered, you can easily reassure yourself by only exposing yourself and listening to your version of the truth. You may have heard the term echo chamber to describe that phenomenon. The people that we disagreed with end up being vilified by our group. They're mocked, made fun of. And resentment builds and communities are, are more deeply divided, forming themselves into in-groups and out-groups. But the Acts 15 model, submitting to the Holy Spirit, I see that the number one objective following a dispute is to encourage and strengthen one another. The two church communities did not retreat to their own corners at the end of this dispute. They sent ambassadors of encouragement and gathered the whole church together to hear it. So let's not think of retreating to our own corners where it might be more comfortable and agreeable but let's gather together in public as believers. Let's affirm and strengthen one another. And let's go out of our way to any who might feel like they're part of the out groups and shepherd them back in. In conclusion, if there's one thing that I, I really personally appreciated in my study of this passage, it's that we absolutely should be disagreeing with one another. You might not have some big theological disagreement with a church leader or another member of this church, but you might disagree about something, um, something that somebody said, maybe there's something I said this morning that you found disagreeable. You might disagree with how we spend our offerings. You might disagree with what we emphasize or don't emphasize in this church. Today's teaching showed us that the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church, they didn't run away from their disagreements. They didn't ignore the problem, pretend it wasn't there, agree to disagree. They came together. They were united in their mutual submission to the Holy Spirit's guidance to find a common understanding. They cared for one another in a way that encouraged everyone. When we ignore our disagreements, 
we're just not caring enough to talk about it, enough to seek unity. And in the end, what we have as a result in this passage is a public testimony of love. Jesus said that you, the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So it's a great testimony to show. I'll close with the words of the 17th century German theologian. His name is Rupertus Meldenius. He coined this saying that's still regarded today as a watchword for Christian peacemakers. When addressing how Christians should treat one another throughout our various differences, he said this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity, grace. Brothers and sisters, we need the discernment of Peter, of Paul, of James, discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit to know when we're dealing with essentials or non-essentials and certainly to continually show grace to one another in all things. I implore us to resist the world's way of disagreeing, to resist our human nature, our human tendencies when confronted with confrontation. Let's stand in sharp contrast to the way that the world handles disagreement so that we could show them the glory of the Lord Jesus in how we love one another. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, how we need you. How we need your nature to, to replace our nature. We're sensitive, God, that the, the history of the church is one of disagreement and sometimes justified, but what we want above all is to disagree in a way that honors you and honors one another. Lord, we don't want to be the way that the world is. We don't want to be sinking in the consequences of our own bad choices. Help us to discern together what your will is. Help us to discern a way to live together in unity, not by ignoring the things that divide us, but by coming together.